This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Harry Styles, your mom's favorite hottie edition. It's Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. On today's show, Chippendale Rescue Rangers is an animated plus live action feature from Disney. The venerable pair of cartoon chipmunks, they date back to the 1940s, are here voiced by John Mulaney and Andy Samberg. And then... Before the comedian Norm MacDonald died last September from cancer, he recorded an alone-at-home version of his final set. The resulting product, Norm MacDonald, Nothing Special, is now out on Netflix with commentary from his A-list peers. And finally, Harry's House is the new and intriguing album from the One Direction heartthrob Harry Styles. We'll be joined by Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic, to discuss it. Joining me first are uh, Julia Turner, who's the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, who's the film critic of Slate. Dana, hey, how's it going? Hey, hey. All right. Well, the original Chippendale cartoon premiered in the 1940s. This uh, pair of endearing animated chipmunks who get up to hijinks. Is a, it's a piece of Disney IP that had its heyday for about two decades in the 40s and 50s. Then in the late 80s, it was rebooted on afternoon TV as something called Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which I'm told was a huge hit with latchkey Gen Xers. That perhaps explains why we now have Chippendale Rescue Rangers, a highly ironic reboot with some big comedy names behind it. Uh, as I said up top, it's a combination of animation and live action, but various kinds of animation. It's got an interesting visual palette, uh, and it's a spoof on our seemingly bottomless appetite for nostalgia and callback culture. As I said, it's voiced by John Mulaney and Andy Samberg. All right, we're about to hear the two characters, Chip and Dale, reuniting after a long time apart. The first voice you'll hear is Andy Samberg as Dale. So, what's been up with you? Oh, you know, this, that, other vague things to fill the space of this conversation. Okay, well, you look the same. Yeah, thanks. And you look different. Ah, hey, it's no secret I had the CGI surgery done, and it's done wonders rejuvenating my career. I'm actually starring in a play tonight. But man, I tell you, the real hot ticket is Rescue Rangers. There's even some buzz about a reboot. Someone started a Facebook fan page for it and everything. Crikey, a Facebook fan page? I don't just give those away. Oh, he's full of it, Monty. No one's talking about a Rescue Rangers reboot except for him. What? The fans are hungry for it. Look, I came here to help Monty, not get caught up in some Hollywood nonsense. So, great to take this skip down memory lane, but I've gotta go. Monty, if you're really in trouble, you know how to find me. Dale, you were also here. Dana, let me turn to you first. You're a film critic. Uh, I was surprised to discover this is getting some, I wouldn't say glowing notices, but pretty generous reviews. Uh, What'd you make of it? 
I mean, I feel like in a way, maybe Julia would be the one to call on because generationally she may relate to that um, that Rescue Rangers show you were talking about more than I do. That came out when I, I don't know if Gen X seems like the right category for when that came out, because if it was 89, 90, I don't know. I mean, I was a young adult then and was completely unaware of the existence of that show. So a lot of the callbacks in this movie are utterly foreign to me. Um, I went in thinking, why is Julia making us see a movie about chipmunks that are going to have horrible, mechanically sped up voices and be grating and annoying? So the fact that this movie was even pleasant to watch was a great surprise to me. I actually thought it was pretty funny and clever and sweet. And it seemed more in tune to me with the um, the Lonely Island sensibility, right? The comedy team that includes Andy Samberg, uh, Akiva Schaefer, who directed the movie. And I think Jorma Takone, the third member of the group, does some some voices in the background. Um it seemed like it was more in tune with their kind of sensibility, the sensibility of the team that made Pop Star, that you know spoof of pop music that we've discussed on the show, uh, than with whatever it is they're spoofing from the 80s and 90s. But I would say the cultural property to keep in mind when deciding if you want to see the Chip and Dale movie or not is not a kid's movie and not even necessarily you know something to do with that 89-90 cartoon but who framed Roger Rabbit? Because what this is really all about, this this movie, technically speaking, is, you know, having the fun of mixing animation of different styles together. You know, when you hear those two chipmunks talking in that clip, voiced by John Mulaney and Andy Samberg, one of them is CGI and one of them is, you know, old-fashioned 2D drawn animation. And, you know, you also see Roger Rabbit himself in this movie. And, you know, everybody's wandering around in the background from sort of silly symphony era Disney characters to, you know, Disney princesses and I don't know what all. It's sort of takes place in one of those half-tune, half-human universes that seems to have its own rules. I'm not sure those rules make complete sense or that this movie does that much that's interesting. It's not as good a movie as Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but it's got at least a few laughs per scene and some really pleasing voice work, and I had a good time. Um, Julia, I'm not sure what's sweeter, the fact that Dana went into this movie thinking that Chip and Dale were Alvin and the Chipmunks, or the fact that she still (laughs) doesn't seem to know that they're not. I guess this This is where I have to confess for the record that I don't remember what voice they had, although I am generationally, I think, just like a year or two older than uh, the prime Disney programming block. I have to say the main main memorable thing about that 80s show is the theme song. The fact that our clip was like people talking, people, people chipmunks talking in this movie, um, rather rather than just the theme song from the old show, which is like the main thing to be nostalgic for, uh, is is you know my my main complaint. Um, this is clever and also too clever, like clever rather than good, clever rather than moving, clever rather than. Uh, than a than something that transcends its own nostalgic self like it is extremely full of hollywood in jokes about animation styles and um you know it 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 it's it is entertaining if you find yourself watching it but it's hard to imagine that it's going to create a next generation of chippendale rescue rangers fans um although i will say it probably did have the intended disney plus effect in our household where I watched the beginning of it with my children. It caused my husband to describe all the shows of the Disney afternoon programming block, which he's a few years younger than me. So I think he watched a bit more of, um, it caused us to play on YouTube the theme songs of all of those shows, including Darkwing Duck and the other ones, all of which were very good. 
and theme songs, I mean. And then later that night on Disney Plus, the children watched a bunch of old Darkwing Ducks instead of anything to do with Chippendale or this movie. They were not interested in finishing it with me. But like, lo, the IP was revivified. <laughs> so, <laughs> and the nostalgia, the nostalgia worked. So I, 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 I think I was a little disappointed because there was an, enough hype about this movie that I was hoping for a little more. Nevertheless, many, many of the jokes about the mechanics of Hollywood and um, particularly the evolution of animation styles are very funny. They they go to the valley and it's the uncanny valley. And the Seth Rogen, there's a bit about a character Seth Rogen plays and his um, dead-eyed Polar Express stare into <laughs> yeah. the, the middle distance where he cannot actually connect with the other animated characters that is ex- worth the price of admission to just yeah, mock agree. that style The look properly. and sound of that character and Seth Rogen's incarnation of him is my favorite thing in the movie. Uh, are you talking to us? Obviously. I said, who are you? Well, right. But in fairness, it looks like you're talking to that window. Nope. It actually looks like I'm looking right at you. Yeah, I mean, I think you pinpointed the two times I cracked a smile while watching this. I mean, I find it funny that Disney is the last person to learn what pretty much everyone else in American life figured out 30 years ago, which is that if you strategically poke fun at yourself, you'll be forgiven for almost anything, including being Disney. But I, you know, I just feel like at this point, we're piling meta upon meta. I, what I dislike most about combining those two observations together, what I dislike most about this movie is this idea that you can get away with, you can excuse yourself for having nothing to say, no real story, um, the cynical way in which you're feeding our nostalgia addiction um, by being ironic about it. I mean, just irony just doesn't have the carrying weight that it used to. We're so many decades into that move it goes back to like politicians appearing on saturday night live i i I just can't i i have to say dana like steve the curmudgeon disappeared for a long time and then last week we saw top gun and i don't know if i'm going to be able to get the genie back in the bottle i i i really resented (laughs) having to watch this fucking movie Tom Cruise crank recrankified you. Oh my God! Well, it was yeah, a beautiful it, it, run. Scene. They they devivified IP and they recrankified me. <laughs> I I uh, there was a reason that uh, Crank Steve was you know hailed as a conquering crank hero. Uh, <laughs> yes, that, I think that's part of what I was trying to say when it when I said that this movie failed to transcend its own cleverness. Like it feels very hermetically sealed in the the junkyard of Disney IP. But I think your point that it's an interesting evolution and that Disney was slow to realize that making fun of itself was a thing that it could and should do is interesting because tonally it almost feels retro to be like, hey, check it out. We're making fun of all of our mm-hmm. IP. Yeah. And it reminds me of our conversation about Wreck-It Ralph 2, a few years ago, remember there's that really funny scene with all the Disney princesses uh, kind of ganging together and hanging out with Vanellope and it's amusing. And I remember saying at the time, like, Disney should make this movie, but they'll never make this movie where all the princesses gang together. So that's my main takeaway from Chip and, the Chippendale reboot is that the, the, the princess supergroup movie could happen and thus should happen. 
that's that's what I hope to see next coming out of this film. I don't know where to take this conversation next, but the most intriguing thing to me is precisely what generation or micro-generation Julia Turner is. She's Catalano. We've talked about this before. <laughs> She's the non-existent media category. They're all non-existent media categories. But <laughs> I still send people to that amazing Dory Shafrir article defining Generation Catalano, a.k.a. the generation that was in high school when my so-called life came out. Uh, AKA people who are exactly, exactly, exactly in between Gen X and millennial, which is the micro generation that I am part of. So if you think as Gen Xers, you enjoy complaining about how the culture slights you, just think about uh, how slighted you might feel if you were Generation Catalano. This I think is (laughs) a few years past us though, maybe. I think this might be like elder millennial, peak elder millennial content. Oh, great. This is exactly what media needs is more little micro discourses about complaining generations. But Julia, (laughs) speaking of generations and and complaining, I was going to ask about your son's resistance to the show. They're eight, right? Or are they nine now? Nine now. They're nine. So, I mean, they're more or less right in the age group, I would imagine, older kids, right, that, that might get some of the jokes in this and that maybe Disney is trying to capture with it. And I wonder what you, whether you were surprised by their boredom with it or what you attribute it to exactly. I mean, is this a movie for adults? I, it had that feeling. But, I mean, to be clear, they watched half an hour uncomplainingly and zoned out in the manner of, of little people engaged in an entertainment but then when I said, hey, do you guys want to watch the second half with me? Or, you know, I got to watch the rest of it, blah, blah. They were like, nah. They they were, so they were not bored or disaffected during, but they were not so hooked. They were like, I got to find out what happens. Um, and I think that that makes sense. Like the, you know, and, and John Mulaney and Andy Samberg are wonderful voice actors. And there is a like charming little plot about their friendship and can they ever make peace for the wounds of long ago? Like it's perfectly competently done. The emotional stakes of the film, it's not like there aren't any there, but that emotionally competent plot, I think pretty clearly signals that it is just a scaffolding upon which to hang a bunch of jokes about IP. And, you know, I think my boys were as bewildered by all the characters Mm. as poor Steve, who didn't know who the hell was going past him on the screen. So they were in the same boat of like, what is all this for? Forget it. Um, And, you know, so I think actually like the real purpose is the is the parents being like, sure, let's try this. I remember it from my childhood and the kids having whatever response they have. And then really it's to get to the parents playing all the theme songs on YouTube. Like that is the point. And we were we got got played the theme songs so um i i I will wait for the darkwing duck reboot next (laughs) all right we will end on that note of optimist kindness and um critical elan that was great a great summary of what this was all right the movie is chippendale rescue rangers it's on disney plus streaming it's not in theaters that's where you catch it online uh if you happen to be micro generationally appropriate to this segment and want to push back on it or whatever Whatever you have to say, we'd love to hear it. Email us. Okay, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
All right. Now is the moment in our podcast. So we take a little pause and we talk business. Dana, what uh, what do we have this week? Stephen, I actually have two items of business today, not just one. I'll tell you about our Slate Plus segment in a minute. But first of all, it is our first show in June. So what do you think that might mean in terms of long-term GabFest history and tradition? Oh. Can we just drop a beat behind this question? <laughs> just like a steady loping beat? <laughs> That's right. Fix up a Tom Collins because it's summer strut time. We're putting out a call to listeners for your favorite songs of the summer. Now, that does not necessarily mean the hit of the summer. In fact, it usually isn't. It could be a hit of many summers gone by, a song that was never a hit, but some sort of song that brings up um, those summer vibes that make you want to strut down the hot asphalt with earbuds on. So we're going to put out the call now. I'm not exactly sure when the show will happen. I imagine late in the summer because we're going to need some time to compile the list and then listen to the list. And going by recent years, we have literally a full sleepless day worth of music to listen to usually uh, to get through for the Summer Strut edition. So please, listeners, send in your candidates. You can send a link to them on Spotify or just the title of the song. And please put Summer Strut in the subject line of the email so that our Beloved production assistant Nadira knows to compile those all in a Spotify playlist. We'll also make those playlists public so you can listen to them. And at some point in the summer, we will all weigh in on our favorite summer songs. Oh, yeah. Funnest show of the year by far. Our only other item of business today is to talk about our Slate Plus segment, which comes from a question from a longtime listener, fan of the podcast. I think he's called in and left voicemails for us before, too, on our our question episode, James Callan. And James Callan asks... What is your ideal pace for enjoying cultural works? The three of you obviously have many of your cultural works chosen for you, and you have obligations to reflect on much of what you see and to talk about it with other people. But if it were up to you, how many TV shows and movies would you watch? How many books would you read? What would your ideal cultural mix be? And what would the pace be? I love this question because as somebody who's been processing cultural material at a rate that feels faster than is humanly possible for 15 plus years, uh, I, I, I like to get to ask what would life be like if you were not a critic and you were just watching and reading stuff for fun? I hadn't really thought about that <laughs> fun and the concept of watching stuff for fun in a while. So if you're a Slate Plus member, stick around. You can hear me, Julia and Steve reflect on that question about pacing our cultural consumption. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Members get ad-free podcasts and lots of bonus content like the segment I just described. You'll also get members-only programming like that on other Slate shows. And of course, you will get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate.com. Also, of course, when you support Slate Plus, you're supporting our work, the work of all of the brilliant journalists that work with us, and the magazine itself. So these memberships matter a lot. So if you can, sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. All right, Stephen, back to the regularly scheduled program. Okay, well, two years ago, the stand-up comedian and SNL veteran Norm MacDonald decided on the spur of the moment to record a set that he'd written for an upcoming Netflix special. He was due to undergo stem cell surgery the following day for his recurring cancer, and he wanted to make absolutely sure that the material did not die with him. He survived the surgery, but thanks to corona, was not able to perform the set live. McDonald died this past September, and now Netflix has released that home taping. It's called Norm McDonald, Nothing Special. Included within it is a post-set roundtable that features some of his A-list peers, Dave Letterman, Dave Chappelle, Molly Shannon, Adam Sandler, on and on. Uh, let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. You know, I've noticed lately, everybody has an opinion. And I, you know, when I was young, it wasn't that way, you know? People would have maybe... I don't know, six opinions, you know? 
Sometimes you meet a guy, he'd have eight opinions. You'd go, God damn, that guy's opinionated. But about six opinions, that'd be about, and most of them were about food, you know, tell you the truth. People would go, Count Chocula, what the fuck's wrong with you? Stuff like that. You know, I mean, I, 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 I have opinions. I mean, I have opinions that everybody holds, you know, I like, uh, I don't know. Yellow is the best color, you know, but I don't know if you call that an opinion. You know, it's just a, it's just a, oh, hold on, it's my phone. Hello? I, I got to phone you back on account I'm doing a special on the TV, comedy special. So I'll call you back, okay? Okay. Uh, sorry about that, guys. Julia, let me start with you. I mean, that's uh, that really gives the feel of it. Um, I like also that, uh, as per what his friends and colleagues indicate after we watch this set in their little roundtables, you know, that phone bit, you just don't know, did he really get a call? Is it a bit? I mean, they talk about how remarkably layered Norm MacDonald's sense of irony was as a person and as a performer to the point you just... Had no, he just was disorienting you with this odd mix of sincerity, and uh, and kind of eye glinting um, uh, irony. Um, what did you uh, would you make of this? Yeah, I had the same thought. There's a moment in the roundtable afterwards, you know, which has a really interesting air that we can get to, where Dave Chappelle says you could never tell if he was setting something up or not, and that to me is is Norm Macdonald's comedy in a nutshell um, because a lot of his jokes if you go back and watch his old Conan appearances were these yarns I mean sort of like you know guy mischievous guy crouched by a fire like long yarns that ended up landing in some weird place that made you crack up and Conan is very eloquent on the round table afterwards in in noting that there's this careful, careful, carefulness. Several times he says that Norm MacDonald was the most precise comedian ever in terms of word choice and even how to deliver words. He notes that he pronounces TV wrong, even though he knows how to say TV. He knows it's TV, but he calls it TV, um, which you hear in that clip. Um, And so, you know, the thing that they don't quite say, except for Letterman, who's the, the most caustic of the bunch, is that as a special, the the taping doesn't totally work. Like it doesn't deliver you the best of Norm McDonald's comedy because the the precision required to constantly be spinning a yarn that you can't tell where it's going and you can't even tell. Like half the time you're watching him, you're like not even confident he's going to land a joke, which is crazy because he's been landing jokes very successfully. He had been for years and years, for decades, but he he almost plays with you and gives you the sense that, like, how could he possibly pull this off? Yeah, I remember that right after he died, there was a story that was told often about him. And I think somebody touches on it in the roundtable as well, that there was some event in recent years, I think it was a roast or it was some kind of awards dinner that he came to with a deliberately terrible set. And he had written an entire series of jokes that were meant to bomb. They were sort of like corny dad jokes or something. And the whole idea was that he was going to play with the audience's expectations by just pushing forward with this this absolutely terrible material and that the mastery that these other comics, you know, he was sort of talked of as a comics comic, 
the mastery that they so admired was that he could do that. You know, he could he could stand in front of people and bomb and not have to succeed. And, and it all depended on this relationship he established with the audience and their discomfort. And without an audience, with him just, you know, speaking in this sealed capsule of, you know, just literally staring into a, a webcam and talking... I mean, if you didn't know anything about Norm Macdonald and who he was and what his comedy was like, I feel like you would think, why are all these comedians talking about how legendary this guy is when, you know, I laughed out loud maybe twice in that entire that entire hour of jokes. But in a strange way, I feel like that is precisely what he may have been aiming for. It is a strange combination, this hour of material of um, what seems to be meticulous writing of material and also a strange kind of not knowing where he's going and us not knowing whether the joke landed or not and whether that fact reflects on us as an audience or on him as a comedian. And you do really see that, Julia, I think, in the conversation afterwards. I thought I was going to have to turn off that conversation at first because it started off so cringe that they were all sort of, you know, obviously missing their friend and wanting to say kind things about him, but not really able to say great things about the set of comedy they had just witnessed. And just when I sort of thought, like, I can't watch this because it's it's too painful, they started to talk about him as a person and their memories of, of other you know, comedy that they'd seen him do or tours that they'd done with him in Adam Sandler's case. And suddenly it became fascinating to watch them, you know, take apart his his comedy and the way it worked. But yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine that this would not have been put on the air without him saying, yes, I'm fine with this being aired. But it felt to me like watching somebody workshop a set of jokes. Yeah, Dana, I mean, there is there is a range of responses, as as you say. I mean, clearly the most, you know, the most tentatively anti is, is Letterman um, and the most vocally pro is Chappelle. And I, I feel as though Chappelle is being very sincere. I don't feel like he's great inflating for a lost friend. Um, but even Chappelle points to the unusual, you know, kind of ambiguous genre of what we've just witn- witnessed. I mean, you know, and what Letterman comes back to is like, I mean, I know it sounds silly, but he's just sort of saying, well, he's not standing up and he's not talking to a live audience. And and I think what Letterman is hinting at is that when you do stand up, um, there's like this electric filament between you and the audience. Like you were, you know, and, and stand-up works or it doesn't work. It's like such a binary and you know in the moment, right? Unlike doing any, almost any other form of art or entertainment or even live performance, it is, it is, you know, you're, you know, it's why, it's why, it's why it's like you either kill or bomb, right? That's why that language is so violent because it's it's an art form of total daring and extremes and failure is immediate and totally humiliating and so it's walking that tight wire that gives stand-up so much of its vitality and energy in the moment but the irony of the whole discussion is how undercutting it is of mcdonald as a comedian who responded to that. I mean, it's not that he didn't respond to an audience. It's that he's also fucking with that electric filament and that he was famous for adoring jokes that produced cavernous silence as a response. (laughs) And he would tell them he wouldn't drop. I mean, someone says like, if you're doing a set and you realize the thing's not working, you like go in your head immediately to something that's going to kill. Right. And it's like McDonald didn't do that when he was on SNL. They did a, a dress rehearsal and, um, uh, uh, and uh, and the live broadcast and the two are total corollaries of one another. If something doesn't work in the dress rehearsal, it does not work in the in the live broadcast. And McDonald's would do an uh, a weekend update joke that would just fall totally flat. 
and and he was like, "We're keeping it." I mean, he insisted. Um, I always found that Julia the most difficult thing about Norm Macdonald. I found him, I, I, I admired him, but I found him um, somewhat distanced. I, I felt like there was a distance I wanted to have closed between me and him or the real him that would help me feel where this comedy was coming from. And he was all about troubling that expectation to the point of of destroying it. And what's fascinating too is like way more than the phone, which could be a bit or an actual friend interrupting, without giving anything away, he closes with in some ways one of the most moving and strongest um, uh, humor-wise sections of the whole thing is he talking about his mother. And there's a deeply, deeply sincere oration about his mother and what his mother meant to him that then has this incredible as they say in the in the round table it's like he goes all the way around the barn like he just does an amazing bring back um and you just have no idea what part of what you've just heard is true he made up a wife named ruth so he could do you know husband bits and you would never know that he didn't have a wife named ruth i just found that so destabilizing yeah i mean and you have to think that, like, there's a part of it that feels like you're watching something so tender and drafty. And honestly, the most emotionally fraught moment is those first few moments of the comics roundtable where they start to be kind of gingerly nice. And then Letterman just comes in and is like, well, it doesn't work, basically. I mean, that's a paraphrase, but that's the strong vibe. And he also sort of, it just reminds you why Letterman is the legend the Letterman is. Um, you know, he sort of cuts through in his own caustic way, but it does kind of free the rest of them to have a, a more direct conversation. But that's the duality of him. You can't you can't tell whether he would be happy for everyone to be left with this mysterious object that's sort of almost funny and almost not. I mean, there's there's a there's also some. I mean, it's interesting to Chappelle weighing in on it. There's some jokes about the culture uh, around trans people in which he is ostensibly defending the the current progressive view and sort of sending up his dad, who may or may not be his real dad, of course, um, for, for having more retrograde views in the past. But it's a joke that lands, it could land either way. Right, it could land. It could land as 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 progressive or regressive. I think so. There's just all these open question marks in the set, and it's hard to tell whether the confusingness of it as an object would be exactly what would make Norm Macdonald gleefully cackle at the trick he'd pulled on the audience, or whether he was so precise and calculated a creator of humoristic ambiguities that he would have been not so excited to see this sort of half-formed um, version of it in the world. And that's that's like the real mystery of the object. I'll also say my husband is a big fan of Norm Macdonald's comedy. And after he died, it, my husband delivered a number of jokes of Norm Macdonald's to my children, who sometimes now try to deliver them. Um, and that's through several layers of, you know, less calculated comedic experience, shall we say, <laughs> than, than Norm Macdonald had in delivering these like shaggy dog oh, jokes. So, good. so um, thank you. Thank you to my husband for teaching my children very long <laughs> jokes. 
<laughs> but but one of them did successfully deliver one um, to to my mom this weekend, and uh, and it was a delight. My, my husband did the. Not, not to turn this into the My Children Respond to Culture podcast, but we also, I think, I think, you know, there's the moment in your childhood where you realize that your parents are fallible. I, I think that happened for us like a year ago after Norm MacDonald died and my husband told a joke after after having hit after hit telling like five long Norm MacDonald jokes in a row and showing a bunch of videos, um, some of which appropriately previewed for, for uh, adult content, some of which not. Then my husband told one, the punchline of which is that um, somehow a bar patron um, ends up eating the bar's pet turtle, thinking that it's like a beef sandwich on a hard roll. (laughs) The children were so appalled. Like hadn't got to the punchline and I didn't see it coming and I was cracking up about this poor dead turtle. (laughs) And our children were just like, you monsters. <laughs> anyway, that's my, uh, that's, I will always have a soft spot for Norm MacDonald who ruined me in my children's eyes. Oh, uh, great bit. Um, all right. Well, Norm MacDonald, nothing special is on Netflix. Uh, I think we all ended up feeling that it was quite worthwhile. So uh, check it out and see what you think. All right, moving on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Harry Styles, he of One Direction and uh, subsequent solo mega stardom, has a new record, Harry's House, out. Carl Wilson, the Slate music critic, says, Styles is a gifted songwriter and even stronger emotional communicator with an incredible fashion sense, stage charisma to burn, and deep musical taste. Uh, his new record, Wilson says, is a welcome advance on his previous two solo outings. Carl, welcome back to the show. So happy to be here. Yeah, it's fabulous to have you back. Will you kick us off by picking a cut to listen to from Harry's House? Yeah, let's just start off with the first track of the album, which is called Music for a Sushi Restaurant, and I think um, immediately kind of establishes a bit of a different sound for anybody who's been following Harry's solo career so far. Maybe give us a, just a quick background on Styles and um, why this is an unsurprising surprise, uh, this record. Yeah, um, 
basic facts. Um, Harry was born in 1994 from Cheshire in the northwest of England. Um, And in 2010, when he was about 16, um, was discovered via um, the X Factor program in England and um, was among many unsuccessful competitors in that year's X Factor was put together by Simon Cowell with four other guys. And um, that was where One Direction came from. So a very classic kind of boy band assembled by a producer um, formula. But in a lot of ways, One Direction wasn't um, a typical boy band. It didn't have this kind of sound that we kind of associate boy bands with from, you know, the days of NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. It had kind of more varied sound. It wasn't kind of all about coordinated dance steps and harmonies. and several of the members gradually emerged as, as songwriters as well. Um, but they were really the kind of toast of Tumblr in the first half, particularly of the, of the teens. Um, and then they gradually cracked up in the mid-2000s and, and ceased activity in 2016. And Harry put out his first self-titled solo album in 2017. And then... Um, an album called Fine Line in 2019, which gave birth to the big hit Watermelon Sugar. And this is his follow-up to that. I would say um, that the arc of those albums um, was really, you know, in a very understandable way, the 2017 album was kind of a bid to establish credibility and kind of trying to make rock star moves and and copying moves from sort of 70s singer-songwriters to kind of try and establish himself as a distinctive voice. And then Fine Line backed away from some of the retroness of that and from the uh, some of the some of the kind of uglier attempts to be um, a Rolling Stones style masculine macho rock star that marred the first album but was kind of reaching for likability in kind of marrying that first album style with a, with a more contemporary pop style. And this album, I'd say, is really what he's settling into a really confident um, style that seems much more his own. And and for the first time, I think, really feels like he's embarking on this solo career, which I think, you know, it takes a long time for people to break out of that boy band um, box and in some ways in relaxing into it he's able to recapture some of the things that made him so appealing in one direction but also along the way you know as I was as I said in that quote that you read off the top Steve he's he's the incredible fashion plate he was the first male solo um, subject of a Vogue cover shoot in 2020 um, he his stage costumes are incredible uh, and he has this really amazing kind of gender fluid, relaxed, goofy presentation, charismatic, but also not playing entirely into a kind of 2022 stereotype of celebrity. He doesn't lay his personal life out to be consumed as tabloid fodder, and he doesn't really lay out um, personal life clues in his music, the way that there's a lot of expectation of of celebrities now, and um, you know some 
critics have criticized him for that, saying that he remains too much of a cipher in his music. But I actually find it refreshing. I've, I enjoy the fact that we get to listen to the music as music and enjoy his personality as a personality and not um, really try and treat these things as, as gossip sheets. And, and that's just the beginning of the things that I find appealing about this album. Yeah, let me just say quickly that that my daughter's crush on Harry Styles came to an abrupt end when after showing me YouTube video after YouTube video of him and him talking and on interviews and stuff, I said, what a delightful young man. And that just, you know, <laughs> that just, that just killed it. Well, luckily that hasn't, uh, parental approval hasn't destroyed his career. Um, this album is, is his first really big number one album. Um, and the, the lead single, as it was, um, from this album has been on, in and out of the number one um, spot on Billboard in it, and for the past couple of weeks has been back in it um, and looks to be kind of one of the songs of the summer. Carl, speaking of songs of the summer, that was the first thing I thought upon putting on this album was that it's it's a good thing that um, Summer Strut is coming up pretty soon because this is very much summer vibes. And I remember, I'm not sure if it was a song of the summer type of song or when it came out during the year, but I remember Watermelon Sugar being very associated with, you know, summer cookouts and things like that, even throughout the pandemic. In fact, to the extent that it got on my daughter's nerves, Steve, she had the opposite of a crush on Harry Styles. And if she knew we were talking about him, eyes would be rolling everywhere because I think she thinks of him as a, as a real poser. And she thought the song Watermelon Sugar was really overplayed and boring, but I thought it was kind of catchy in summary. I'm just thinking out loud. I don't know if I could ever go Watermelon sugar And that's exactly how this album hit me too. I think my favorite song on it, and this actually may have to do with my own gossip knowledge about Harry Styles, which I can't seem to avoid, even though I don't necessarily try to follow gossip about his career, which is that he's been dating Olivia Wilde, the, you know, director, actress, um, you know, emerging. I feel like she's kind of an emerging filmmaker. And the song that he arguably seems to have written for her on this album is my favorite song on the album. Maybe that's because I'm an Olivia Wilde fan and a movie critic, but it's called Cinema. And I wanted to hear the chorus of that, if we could, because to me, I can tell it's going to be one of my songs of the summer already. I just think you're cool. Cinema, I'd say, is one of the most divisive tracks on this album. I like it too, um, but I think that some people find... And this comes up, and it came up a little bit with Watermelon Sugar, and, and similarly with many of uh, Harry's food-sex-based metaphors. Um, occasionally people find it a little gross, I think, when he when he's a little too um, lover-man in his lyrics, you know, like the cinema is a song that I could have kind of imagined Maxwell having come out with at some point in his career. And it doesn't bother me at all, but some, but some people do also in the, speaking of the food sex thing, some people keep thinking that it's called cinnamon, but yeah, that, that that's the most overt 
nod to the Olivia Wilde story. You know, the song says that she's cinema and he's pop and she pops when they get intimate. It's <laughs> the line that I think bothers people sometimes. Um, but, but cinema um, and intimate, that's such a good rhyme. You know, that's one yeah. of, that was one of my favorite lyrical moments on the album, actually. <laughs> and usually I don't like rhymes that are off rhymes, but that is a very clever one. Yeah. And I think that actually, you know, if you want to read into this album, you can see a kind of not all the time, but in lots of songs, a surfacing theme of some kind of long distance relationship and the idea of a kind of um, binary between L.A. and London, um, which are the two places that Harry spent lockdowns. Um, and the album was made in lockdown with his two close collaborators, Tyler Johnson and a producer who calls himself Kid Harpoon. And so it comes out of this kind of hothouse um, atmosphere. And in some ways, you know, the album's called Harry's House and it does represent a little bit more of a domestic and intimate kind of tone compared to the first two albums. Although, as I was saying, not intimate enough for some people's tastes. I'm struck by the fact that uh, the, the, two parents of teenagers on this podcast, both of their teenagers are too cool for Harry Styles. Like I'm, I, I feel interested like an alien anthropologist that Harry Styles is the sex symbol of our day. And like, he really is like everyone except for Dana and Steve's cool children seems to have a crush on him like multi-generationally. But I do wonder if as he gets bigger, there's a way in which he's, becoming a hottie for old people or something. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's just a, a multi, multi-generational crush on him. Like I, I, he, it's not, doesn't stir me in that way, but I'm like, how nice for the culture that he's the hottie, like love to have a fashion forward, you know, gender ambiguous, modern hottie, great work culture. Like that's sort of my <laughs> feeling rather than like, get me Harry Styles in my veins, you know? <laughs> Can I just quickly interject here and say that our production assistant texted the group chat saying, I can certainly write 2,000 words on why I love Harry Styles, if that helps. <laughs> so, <laughs> On my desk by tomorrow at 9 a.m., Nadira. I think that as an icon, he, you know, partly, definitely it, it is grown-up one-directioners who are sustaining him. And I think it is also older people, you know, I think that he stands somewhere in a line between Lil Nas X, who um, also sort of in a gender line breaking and and kind of sexually flamboyant way has made a mark on the culture that's very appealing in the past few years. And then on the other hand, you know, he also has some of the kind of milk toastiness of Bruno Mars in a lot of ways. And you could, you could make a call about where he falls that way, you know, but I have to admit that like one of the ways that I was courted and charmed by Harry Styles was in his kind of intergenerational gestures, which the thing that made me fall in love with Harry was in 2017 when on a couple of different occasions, he duetted with Stevie Nicks on a version of Landslide, there's this amazing YouTube video um, from a performance of the two of them at the True Brewer in LA in 2017, where they sing Landslide together really beautifully, and they clearly have a, a, a nice connection. Oh, 
And then towards the end of it, Harry just bursts into tears on the final chorus because he's so moved to be up there with Stevie Nicks. And and that kind of won my heart immediately. And he's kept up this pattern of of duetting with older women um, this year at Coachella, where, by the way, he was wearing this incredible fur coat and this like Liza Minnelli, like sparkling pantsuit. He brought out Shania Twain and they sang Man, I Feel Like a Woman together. Okay, but this is just confirming he's like your mom's favorite hottie. And like the only way to maximize your mom's favorite hottie, like brand aura energy is he's like duetting with all your mom's favorite musicians. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so unusual. It's great. <laughs> okay, well, I'm here to report that our production assistant is already uh, halfway through through her 2000 word assignment on the group chat. Um, <laughs> Carl, it is, uh, it's always a joy to have you on the show. This one was right in your wheelhouse. You didn't miss it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. The pleasure was all mine. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you got this week? Steve, the day that we're recording this, June 7th, is, is Prince's birthday. He would have been 64 years old if he was still alive. And my endorsement has to do with with our beloved, dearly departed Prince. Um, and it is that I just discovered, because of his, his birthday and people tweeting about his birthday, that his concert film, Sign of the Times, from 1987, is finally, finally widely available streaming. Maybe that's been true for a while, but if so, it's only been a short while. I remember that after he died in 2016... All of these people were posting about how Sign of the Times is one of the greatest concert movies ever and that it had criminally not been on home video since, I think, 1991, the movies from 87, um, because it wasn't a hit in theaters. And for some reason, it was just never sort of picked up, even though when for the brief period it was on VHS, I think it was a huge bestseller and very, very popular and beloved. And after he died, there were all these things about, oh, here's a you can get a Russian bootleg of Sign of the Times and you can torrent Sign of the Times. And it was like this difficult gem that was impossible to access. Then I think for a while it was on Showtime. But then, of course, you have to subscribe to Showtime to see it. But finally, now, as of this spring, I think um, I don't know what's happened legally or whatever, but Sign of the Times concert film is everywhere. You can stream it on Amazon. It's on the Criterion channel right now. I think it's on Peacock TV as well. If you go out there and look, it is not at all hard to find a perfectly affordable 
streaming version of Sign of the Times. So I am I am here endorsing something that I've never seen, um, but I guarantee it will be wonderful. I can't imagine that the Prince concert film that everyone thinks is one of the greatest concert films of all time is going to be a disappointment. So I'm looking to stream it in the near future, and I'm hoping people will go out and find it as well. Ah, that is so good. Great endorsement. Um, Julia, what do you have? I want to endorse two things. Uh, this is going to be a little bit like endorsing Chinatown or what are some of the other like head smackingly, dumbly obvious things I've endorsed over my years. Famously good cultural experience is good reports Turner. Um, but uh, I, I finally went to the Hollywood Bowl, the legendary uh, outdoor music venue in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. And it is as glorious uh, as as everyone here believes it to be. It's a treasure of the city. It's a, a just a beautiful place to enjoy the fact that being outdoors in the evening in LA is one of life's great pleasures. And uh, in honor of the 100th anniversary of the bowl celebrations that are underway this summer, uh, my team has put together a gigantic special issue slash guide to the history of the Hollywood Bowl, delightful things that have happened there, uh, hacks and tricks for attending. And so if you have if you are a fan and you love it, or if you are a neophyte and don't yet know anything about it, I would point you to this wonderful package of Hollywood Bowl Iana, including a fantastic lead essay from our marvelous classical music critic, Mark Swed, who delightfully unspools a bunch of incredible yarns about the odd, odd history of the place. So the Hollywood Bowl and the LA Times package about its history are my endorsements this week. Uh, that sounds that sounds really cool. All right, my endorsement this week is, uh, uh, there's uh, obviously a lot going on in this country that's, um, I mean, dismaying is to <laughs> insult all of our intelligences. It's, it's heartbreaking and terrifying. And um, uh, I think we're all looking for a way to try to, understand what's happening to us collectively and i understand that many of its most important aspects are continuous with a history that the most vulnerable people in this country have been aware of all along right the idea that it's a sea change and we need to treat it as a sea change is a very specific point of view and i just want to flag that i don't subscribe to that however i do think that there is a large let me put it let me put it a different way actually i think l- large and horrifying trends in our that go back to our founding and beyond are uniting and rising simultaneously to the surface as a now frighteningly single phenomenon whatever you want to call it um and something that's really helped me think about it is Um, a memoir that was written by um, a German man in the 1930s, in 1939, having witnessed the 30s um, and seeing, obviously, I mean, obviously, sort of takes you through um, the teens and the 20s, the rise of Hitler in the 30s, right up to uh, roughly, I haven't finished it, but I'm assuming like roughly the invasion of Poland and the start of the war. Um, but it wasn't published until 2000. It was the man who wrote it, his name Sebastian Hafner, and the book is called Defying Hitler, a Memoir. And um, it was published posthumously by his son, who's a literary figure in Germany as well. Actually, it's quite a bit of acclaim and, and commercial success. And I see why. I mean, it's, it's both an extraordinary memoir. It's filled with I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say Proustian reverie, right? I mean, it's not that kind of a memoir exactly, but it's a very... Frank look at his own childhood and his own response as a 
pretty small boy to the uh, to World War One, and how it was a kind of sporting event in their lives. And then there was this dislocating fact where everything they'd been told about the course of the war turned out to be suddenly revealed as untrue in their defeat, and what it was like to live through the humiliations of the Treaty of Versailles, and on and on and on and on. These things are somewhat familiar. It's not at all itself familiar. It really gets into the deep source of mass appeal for a single charismatic uh, and um, satanic figure and how a society might do that. And I, I, I just think it's beautifully written and really deeply considered. And um, I couldn't recommend it more. Defying Hitler, a memoir by Sebastian Hafner. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Dana, thanks a lot. Another phone one. It was a good one, Steve. Yeah, I agree. All right. Um, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. Our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. The introductory music to the show is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, Carl Wilson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will we'll see you next week. That's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.